Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Kareen from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. When you pick up a Stephen King book, you know what you're getting into. There is going to be spooky horror. There's going to be a lot of Maine. There's going to be a lot of poop jokes. You know what you're getting into when you wrap your little mitts around a 400-page Stephen King novel. Or do you? In 1999, a young, unassuming Kareen, after reading The Stand, which was a horrible mistake, um, decided to give Stephen King another shot and picked up his brand new book, expecting the same mixture of folksy humor and horror, but instead was met with the story of a nine-year-old girl trying to survive the real horror of this world, which is nature and the outdoors. Truly the most terrifying thing we have ever known. The book was The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, and unlike other Stephen King books, it doesn't really deal with terror. It is a girl lost in the woods, grappling with trying to retain her sense of self as she is getting more tired, more hungry, and slightly more hallucinogenic. The real horrors are the trees that we meet along the way. So, Oftentimes, a piece of good advice in life is to stay in your lane. But sometimes when authors deviate on that, go down the back roads or like merge onto a highway that's going in a different direction, magic can happen. And so today on Keep It Fictional from the Port Moody Public Library, we are going to explore four authors who kind of pushed that boundary a little bit and did not heed the advice to stay in their lane. So I am joined by three other trailblazers, question mark, reading trailblazers. We'll go with that. My book friends today, we have Sadie, we have Emma, and we have Al. And I am your host today, Kareen, on this kind of very interesting topic. I'm curious for all of my book friends, do you do you find yourself like quite loyal to authors when you are picking books to read? I feel like we all know the answer. To this one for me. Uh, yes, I am definitely loyal to my authors. That's not to say that I won't try new authors. I love finding new authors. I especially love finding new series authors who have a huge backlog that I can just spend my time reading through. But yes, I am definitely loyal, very loyal to my authors. I've mentioned many of them on this podcast, but Lee Bardugo, Kelly Armstrong, I tend to kind of pick up whatever they write. Yeah, I'd, I'd Definitely loyal. Definitely loyal. And that's that's fair because I usually have a very strong sense of what a Sadie book is. Like when I can just like, as I pick it up, I can like, oh yeah, I can feel that this is a Sadie book. And you have your like little stable of authors that you love and support. And, and, and I appreciate your loyalty. What about you, Emma? There's definitely authors that like, I've read quite a few of their books. I don't think there's many authors where I've read like their entire backlog quite like Sadie has. So I would say like yes and no, because when it comes to authors that I love, like I love Kurt Vonnegut, I love Frederick Bachman, both of those people write very different types of books. There's a lot of mangakas that I really love, so I'll read like the entire series that they write, but then that manga series is so different from Kurt Vonnegut, is so different from Frederick Bachman. So I am loyal to some 
authors into some genres, but they're like, I there's range to it, you know? Fair enough. All right, Al, are you like ride or die for, for authors? I think there's a few authors who have sort of earned my respect. <laughs> and in that case, yes, I would be pretty ride or die for them. I like sort of jumping around. I like reading debut authors. I like reading new stuff. But if I have really liked an author's work, I will pull a Sadie and delve into their back catalog. One author that comes to mind is Seanan McGuire. I have read so much, not everything because she's written a lot, but I've read a, a large amount of what she's written, including a bunch of the stuff she's written under her pseudonym, Mira Grant, and absolutely loved all of it. Yeah. And the kind of like pseudonym suggestion kind of does bring up why this is sometimes a problem for the authors themselves. You know, they're, they're authors, they're writers, they're artists. And so they, they often don't want to kind of like pigeonhole themselves into a particular genre style of writing. And I find that, especially with a lot of genre authors, so horror, fantasy, sci-fi, they often kind of get, I guess, like forced by marketing to kind of keep writing the same thing over and over again, or at least keep writing the same genre. And so you will find that a lot of authors who are interested in kind of like exploring different genres, different topics, maybe dipping their toes into kind of like literary things will adopt a pseudonym because it's, it's essentially a marketing ploy. Unless an author is like big enough that, you know, their name recognition is like an instant buy. Like, let's go with James Patterson, who writes children's books like his name is a big enough draw that it's okay that he kind of like crosses genres and and crosses age groups but for a lot of like smaller authors when they're trying to build that fan base it's really tough because you know the publishing companies are like oh no you you're a fantasy author and you do the fantasy and then if they try to kind of do something else like they they do have to kind of adopt a pseudonym so that people aren't confused but i feel like we're smarter than that I feel like we're, we're we're able to kind of stretch those mental muscles to really like accept that writers might want to do different things. But on the the history of pseudonyms, one of my authors that I'm super was super loyal to, um, who has since passed away, was Elizabeth Peters, who wrote the Amelia Peabody series, and she had three pseudonyms: one for her mystery novels, another for her gothic romances, and then another because she was a PhD in Egyptology that she did her scholarly work on. So she actually had three pseudonyms. And you'll find like, I, I think it's less of a thing now, but definitely in the past, like even Agatha Christie had a pseudonym that she wrote like kind of funny Arthurian romances on. So I find this kind of like genre hopping so interesting. And it's funny because I'm looking directly at Sadie because one of her favorite authors, Kelly Armstrong, hasn't met a genre that she doesn't want to tackle. Like, can you think of a single genre, Sadie, that she hasn't? She's actually releasing like a legit contemporary romance book next year. So yeah, no, she has not. She she basically will will kind of do anything. I think she's written kids books. I think she's she's written, I mean she's done YA, she's done thriller, mystery, historical mystery, straight up urban fantasy, um straight up like high fantasy for YA. She does, yeah, thrillers for YA. Like yeah, no. I I, I don't think that she she has, which I which I feel like um similar to James Patterson where he uh I remember when we did our James Patterson episode and we all were able to read a book from a different genre. They've got range. They've got range. 
All right. Well, we are going to talk about four kind of unusual books for the authors that we picked that when they're trying out like a new genre or maybe a new audience. And so I am very curious, Sadie, I don't think you chose a Kelly Armstrong book. No. Okay. So let's, let's see what author you, you picked that kind of went out of their lane. It is a common enough theme in myth and fairy tale. We can be happy if only you don't look too closely. Or in some cases, if only you don't look at all. The Greek myths of Eros and Psyche and Orpheus and Eurydice, the Japanese myth of the crane wife, the French tale of Melusine. In each of these stories, someone is warned that if they look, if they spy, if they peek during a certain time, then they will forfeit their happiness and lose their love. However, they always do. Even knowing the warnings and what they stand to lose, their curiosity always gets the better of them. And they always look. For Indigo Maxwell Castaneda, the rich, beautiful, powerful heir to the Castaneda fortune, is not so much that she minds being looked at. What she knows will be the end to her marriage is her secrets. And so she warns her new husband, if you pry, you'll destroy our marriage. As we know, they always do. This is The Last Tale of the Flower Bride by Roshani Choksky. And it is, in essence, a fairy tale. Our narrator, who is known only as the bridegroom, has always been fascinated by fairy tales. Well, he's always been obsessed with fairy tales. At least he has ever since his younger brother escaped to the world of fairies through the armoire in their childhood home. Or at least that's what the bridegroom knows happened. He knows that his brother went into the armoire, into the land of fairies, and he never came out again. His parents, however, claim that he never had a brother to begin with. Now, as an adult, the bridegroom has backed his obsession with a strong academic background and extensive knowledge of all fairy tales and myths. And it is this academic background that first brings him to Paris as a visiting exhibit curator and first brings him to the Hotel Castaneda. He is in search of a 13th century grim grimoire, which is rumored to be part of the Castaneda's family's private collection. So he has written to Indigo to see if he can arrange a viewing. Now, the bridegroom is very surprised when he's approached not by the man who he's expecting to meet, but by a striking woman who smells faintly of green apples and whose own interest in fairy stories and myths has been building since she was a child. Their romance is a whirlwind, and before long, the two were married. Their marriage survives on passion and stories. As an expert of fairy tales and myth, the bridegroom has a never-ending supply of tales to tell. However, both Indigo and her husband soon begin to realize that a marriage can't really thrive on stories alone. There must be some truth to their lives. And in that truth, secrets are revealed. The first of Indigo's secrets that the bridegroom finds is actually by accident. He had every intention of keeping his promise not to pry, to leave Indigo's secrets alone. That is, until he discovers a braided strand of hair hidden in a decorative granite sphinx 
Now, attached to the braid are two teeth. One is engraved with the letter A. When Indigo finds him holding the hair, she instantly grows cold and distant. She leaves their house for days without a word. She does come back eventually, and life somewhat goes back to how it was before. However, now the bridegroom begins to realize that Indigo's secrets aren't going to disappear. And now that he has had a glimpse of them, he doesn't know if he can stop looking. He's provided with an opportunity. When Indigo receives news from her childhood home, known as the House of Dreams, her estranged aunt, Hippolyta, or Tati, is dying, and Indigo is needed at home. They leave at once. On their journey there, the bridegroom is once again warned, do not go digging. Do not go looking. You will not like what you find. When they arrive at the House of Dreams, an almost sentient house which seems to welcome Indigo back into its walls as if she never left, the bridegroom is surprised by his wife's coldness towards her dying aunt, and even more surprised when Tati brings up a name that he's never heard before, Azure, Indigo's best friend from childhood. At one time, the two had been inseparable creating fairy stories themselves and dreaming of the day that they would be stolen away from the mortal world and brought to the land of the fairies together. Azure, who Indigo refuses to talk about. Azure, who left town and was never seen again. Now, what happened to Azure and Indigo to make them stop talking? What happened to Azure to make her leave town? What happened to Azure? Bridegroom knows that he's going to look, that he's going to pry. How can he not? A young woman who has always dreamed of escaping to the land of fairies one day disappears. Where else could she have gone but to the same land that his brother went to? And maybe, just maybe, if the bridegroom can find her, then he can also find his brother. However, he also knows that this choice cannot be undone. And in doing so, he'll be betraying the one thing Indigo begged him never to do. This book is, in essence, a fairy tale. However, it is much more than that. It is a story of family trauma and tragedy, a story of love and obsession, a story of mystery and control. We get the story told from two perspectives, one from the bridegroom as he starts to uncover the secrets surrounding his wife's life, and one from Azure telling the story of a girl who was dragged to an island with her mom and her newest boyfriend, who always looked at Azure just a bit too long and a bit too closely. A story of how she first met Indigo, who at the time was making an offering of milk and blood to the fairies. A story about the connection the girls had and the promises they made to each other and broke. It's a story about secrets and memories, neither of which can be trusted. It has hints of magical realism, but never fully dives into the world of fantasy. Not really. And it begs the reader to answer the question, would you look? If you knew you would destroy everything, would you still look? So I actually ended up technically reading two books for this episode. And that's because when I first picked this book up as the first adult book by the author, I was very convinced that I had already read one of her YA or children's books. 
that was not the case. And so I felt that in order to fully look at the two books side by side and compare the two books, I did, in fact, need to read the uh, children's book. So I ended up reading the first book of Chokshi's kids series, Arusha and the End of Time, which I have to admit, I actually preferred, I think, over The uh, Last Tale of the Flower Bride. Talking about kind of going between genres and going between different age groups, the styles are very, very different. Arusha, I would say, is very plot-driven. It kind of dives right into the action and takes the reader on a fun and exciting journey. Whereas The Flower Bride is much more atmospheric, much more character-focused. The story takes a really long, slow path before it reaches any true excitement. I think that this aspect is probably very appealing to some people, as we've talked about. People who are a bit more character-driven as opposed to plot-driven are more interested in the relationships and in the connections between people. However, I am a plot-driven reader, and so it did make it hard for me to get into this book. However, I will say that once the action, quote-unquote action, of this book starts, it was very difficult to put this book down. I could not put it down. And so I think that that is why I still overall enjoyed this book, because I could not put it down by the end, and I still find myself thinking about it. So yeah, so I would say that if you are looking for something a bit more dark, atmospheric, not quite situated in reality, but doesn't really jump into fantasy, I, I would I would not call it a fantasy at all. I would say it definitely sits more in the world of magical realism than fantasy. And it focuses more on relationships and characters. And it does focus quite strongly on fairy tales and myths. So if you are interested in that, then I think that this would be a great book for you. And that is The Last Tale of the Flower Bride by Roshani Chokshi. Interesting. I also love your dedication to the cause, Sadie, and that you read not just one, but two books. He said, I was I was so sure that I had already read the other one. And so I'm like, this is great. Like, I've read this, the like kids one. I can read the adult one and I'll be able to look at them side by side. No, I didn't. I put it on my to read list a while ago and then I just never. Oh, that to read list. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I appreciate and recognize your dedication to the cause, Sadie. All right. Uh, we are going to move over to Al next. So Al, what book did you choose or what author did you choose and, and where did they go? All right. So I cheated a little bit with this topic. Instead of picking an author who wrote outside their usual genre, I've picked one who wrote very much inside his usual genre, but instead for a different audience, for children rather than adults. So today I'm going to be talking about Neil Gaiman and his middle-grade novel that's become something of a modern classic, Coraline. We begin with our titular heroine, Coraline, moving in with her family to a new house. It's too big of a house for just them, so they live in just part of it, with two older women named Miss Spink and Miss Forcible living below them, and a strange old man who says he's training a mouse circus living above them. Coraline is a curious and adventurous young girl and spends much of the first week or so living in her new home, exploring it and the area around it. She learns that Miss Spink and Miss Forcible used to be actresses, and they live with several little dogs named things like Hamish and Jock. And she finds out that the strange old man upstairs will not show her the mouse circus yet because they are not ready. The mice will not play their instruments like they're supposed to, going toodaloodaloo instead of oompa oompa like he wants. She also finds an old well on the property, which Miss Spink and Miss Forcible tell her to avoid as it's dangerous. 
Miss Spink and Miss Forcible also give Coraline a rock with a hole in it, saying that it might be helpful. She also meets a black cat, who is very standoffish. Coraline's adventuring is brought to a halt by rain, though, and she becomes terribly bored. Her father gives her a task to keep her occupied, explore the house, and count all the blue things, and count all the doors. Coraline does this, and in the process finds a locked door that she doesn't know where it leads. Her mother unlocks it to show her that it doesn't lead anywhere. It was bricked up when the house was turned into apartments. That night, Coraline has strange dreams, and when she wakes up in the night, she hears a skittering noise. Following the noise, she finds that the bricked-up door is open. Disturbed, Coraline goes back to sleep. The next day, the rain has given way to mist, and her mother goes out to get groceries. Bored, Coraline goes back to the door and finds out that instead of bricks, it now leads to a long, dark hallway. Curious, Coraline goes down the hallway, and when she does, finds herself in what seems like a copy of her new house. She meets a strange woman who looks like her mother, but with black button eyes, who calls herself Coraline's other mother, as well as a man who looks a lot like her father, but also with button eyes, who says he is her other father. Everyone has an other mother and another father, they tell her, and they have been waiting for her for a long time. They make her a delicious dinner, which Coraline eats with relish, and after dinner she does as she's told and goes to her room to play with the rats. It's decorated strangely, in pink and garish green, and the rats sing her a strange song. Disturbed, Coraline leaves her room and tells her other parents she's going for a walk. She meets the same black cat as from her world, who talks here, but does not give her any answers. In this other world, there's also another Miss Spink and Miss Forcible, and another old man, all with button eyes and acting strangely. Coraline visits both, but, disturbed, returns to the house. Her other mother tells her that they want her to stay with them forever, and all that she has to do is let them sew buttons onto her eyes. Coraline refuses, though, and the other mother reluctantly lets her go home. But when Coraline gets home, she finds that her real parents seem to have disappeared. With the black cat by her side, Coraline realizes that she needs to go back to the other mother's world and figure out what happened to her parents. As she tells the cat, being scared and doing it anyway, that's what brave is. Coraline is a delightfully creepy little book that I remember fondly from my childhood, and I can say with certainty that it holds up. It's written more simply than Gaiman's adult works, as one would expect, but the prose is still very readable, and it doesn't talk down to its audience. It's a fairy story, a ghost story, and a children's adventure story all rolled into one. And even as an adult, it's fun to read. Gaiman has said that this is a book of his that children love, but that gives adults nightmares. And I can see where he's coming from. There's many adult fears that lurk behind the story. The fear of a child being threatened being just one of them. But maybe I'm inoculated against the nightmares having read this book as a child initially. Coraline is a clever, resourceful, and brave heroine, and I appreciated getting to spend time with her again. I would recommend this book for any kid who wants something a little spooky, or any adult who is looking to reconnect with the child inside. What did you think of the movie, Al? I really liked the movie. 
I think it's a, it's a good adaptation. It obviously changes a few things, but the stop motion is gorgeous. And I think it's just, it's a really great way to introduce kids to the story of Coraline. And the soundtrack is great. It's a fantastic soundtrack. Oh my gosh. I like using it when I'm doing like a program and it's like a little bit spooky. I'm just like, eh, we'll just sneak that in right now. And honestly, the song that the the other father sings, the Coraline song, gets stuck in my head constantly which we will not sing for copyright reasons. But you can definitely look that up on YouTube. It's a, it's a, it's a banging song. Absolute, like, because it's, it's, they might be giants, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great song. It's a great song. All right. As you know, like, we usually, like, prepare for this podcast a little bit so that we're not left totally speechless. Unfortunately, the notes that I have written to myself this morning are cryptic. So I am here to ask our regular existential question. And according to my notes, the question is stickers, loyalty, genre. So I am going to say, um, okay, we're going to go with this question. Are you more loyal to authors or are you more loyal to genre? That's what I'm going to stick to you right now. So it's tough because Sadie, I feel like we we pick on you a lot in this episode, but it's because like you're, 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 you're like the Samwise Ganji of readers. Like I'm not leaving you. I know you're making some really stupid decisions right now and you're not in a good place, but I'm going to support you until you get up that mountain of readers. So I'm going to put this to you, but I feel like I might know the answer. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely loyal to, to authors, but I, in a way, I am also loyal to genres. Like, I, I definitely have my genres that I stick to almost apart from those authors that I'll kind of read whatever they put out. As I mentioned, Kelly Armstrong, I, I think there's only one genre that she has written that I absolutely hated. I read the first book and I will not read any others in the series. And it's just like straight historical fiction. I She just... She just doesn't have the right touch for it, I feel like. Um, maybe they've gotten better. I think it was her first foray into historical fiction, so maybe the series has gotten better. Um, but that's sort of, for her specifically, the only one that I won't really touch anymore. But yeah, I definitely, like, I, I'm faithful and loyal to my genres everywhere else. And so I will tend to stick to the same genres and kind of read read whichever authors write within those genres. And then this, the few authors that I have, I'll read whatever genre they write. I, I don't know if there's like a genre, if they wrote a genre that I would not read. I'm not I'm not sure. Like if, if Kelly Armstrong ever wrote maybe like a solid nonfiction critique would probably not be up my alley. Um, <laughs> but I don't see her doing that. I really don't see her doing that. Yeah. So I mean, like I've tried her the books that are more classed as horror than anything else. And I think she's probably the only author that I'll read in that genre. So yeah, so I think if I love the genre, the author enough, I will read any genre. And I am kind of loyal to the authors as well as the genres. Excellent. All right, Emma, what about you? Are you more loyal? You might be more loyal to format, but are you, do you think you're kind of more of a genre person, author person? I'm definitely loyal to format. You're pretty accurate there. But within formats, because like obviously we know I read a lot of graphic stuff, whether it's like a kid's comic book or a teen or adult manga series or whatever. But within those formats, I am, I would say definitely more loyal to genres than I am to authors. Because like I love kind of like a ghost story, paranormal story. I like stories that talk about mythologies and mythologies from different cultures. But I also like like 
literary fiction. And I really enjoyed like speculative fiction and some kind of like less hard science fiction, but more soft science fiction, like the uh, the Slaughterhouse-Five science fiction, that kind of realm. And within these genres or these different formats, I don't like pigeonhole myself or like, oh, like I love this author. So I'm going to read all of this author's books. Like that doesn't really happen to me. I'm more like, oh, this book sounds good. This book looks like it has good vibes. I'll check it out here and there. So I kind of just read whatever appeals to me, but there's not a whole lot of consistency as far as that goes. If that makes sense. It does. It does. It does. All right. Um, Al, I know you're a very strong genre reader. And I mean, genre writers tend to kind of typically stick to what they love, even though they might be bouncing between like horror, fantasy, science fiction. But do you find yourself more loyal to the genre or more loyal to authors? I think I'm more loyal to the genre overall than I am to authors. I'll but I also like to read widely. So every once in a while, I'll dip outside my sci-fi fantasy horror kind of niche to see what else is going on, especially if an author has proven themselves to me as really good. So, for example, I'm not much of a historical fiction reader, but I absolutely loved Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. So I picked up her historical fiction about... It's called Doc, and I'm trying to remember who it's about, historical figure. Doc Holliday? Yes, Doc Holliday. Thank you. Um, but that was also great. But generally, I stick within my genres, and I read within my genres pretty widely. No, that's that's very true. I can't always like pick an owl book out of a lineup. As witnessed by our staff has a competition where we have to choose what everyone's favorite book of the year is. And I didn't participate because I only played a win, and I knew I couldn't win, so I didn't play. And I don't I if, if it was like a sci-fi fantasy book I feel like I could have nailed it but I, I mean Al sometimes you come out with these wild cards every once in a while and I'm like okay I, I can see why because you do read quite widely um but I, I I can't necessarily pin it down in the same way that I could look at that list and be like no yeah that's Sadie's book or honestly I got Emma's for sure I will say because I'm a very I'm going to use the word fickle very fickle reader in that I'm kind of like some of the other readers here, very mood-based. So I will pick up anything regardless of genre if I'm in the mood for it. And I will follow, I actually do kind of follow authors when I find a new one. I'm like, oh, like if I really enjoyed it, then I'll kind of go into their back catalog and see if, you know, they're worth it. But if they, if they cross me once, they're dead to me, dead to me. Yeah. Which is probably why I'm single. So yeah. So that, yeah, I, I I usually kind of give the authors a chance unless they start to kind of like one of their books is no good. I could name names, but I'm going to be polite today. But I am going to talk about an author and a book that I really, really love and who has like, like, it's all good. It's all good. No duds, just hits all the way. No skips. And we are going to start this book in Brooklyn in the 1970s. So New York in the 1970s is a period, a time and a place that's explored in a lot of literature and a lot of movies because the images that came out of it, the time, the atmosphere is so iconic, full of oh, <laughs> economic, political, and social upheaval. So in the 1970s, the Wikipedia article said it lapsed into bankruptcy as if you just kind of like wake up one morning and just kind of like, well, I've had enough of having money. 
And so this kind of plunged this this kind of small area full of so many people and culture and history into kind of unprecedented times. So a lot of the things in the 1970s, like these these big social upheavals, these big iconic events um, happened in that particular period. So the idea of the the New York blackouts and then all of like the history of hip hop that came out of that in the 1970s, the idea of white flight from different neighborhoods, leaving places and then being the new home of different communities, the Son of Sam killings, the heroin epidemic, crime sprees, the rise of the Nation of Islam, the Black Panthers. It, it, it's such like a rich, a rich period in history. So many stories, so many events. And, you know, in, in this particular period, not all of those stories have been told. And so I really, really loved that an author that I really, I, I, I love everything that she does. Everything she does touches to gold. That she chose to kind of go back into her own personal history, her own experience of growing up in this area and kind of tell maybe a story that hasn't been told before. This is a coming of age story of a young black girl named August because she was born in August. And she laments at the beginning of the book of how different her family might have been if they were a jazz family and not a blues family. Her father and her brother and her have recently moved from Tennessee, kind of like this slow agricultural area, small and remote, to move to Brooklyn. Her mother has not come. And August repeats to herself and her younger brother that she is left to take care of as her father goes to work, that her mother will come tomorrow or tomorrow or tomorrow. And so alone with her brother, she is cautioned by her father not to leave their apartment. There's a lot of things happening out on the streets that this young girl doesn't understand. But what she does see... One particular image that kind of captures her imagination and gives her hope are three beautiful Black girls her own age striding confidently down the street. Sylvia, Angela, and Gigi. They walk down the streets like they own them laughing and smiling. The future is theirs. They're confident. They fear nothing. They fear nothing on streets when there are a lot of things to scare them. And eventually, when August is allowed to leave the house and attend school, she manages to talk to them. And a friendship is formed, a bond. And the author writes about the importance of the friendship between girls at this particular age and the bond and how all of their future is in front of them. And they dream so big. They want to be dancers or singers or lawyers. The world is theirs. But what this author also captures is that the world is not a safe place for them. Brooklyn is not always a safe place for them. There's darkness that lurks in alleys. 
that's waiting for them behind the staircase of their apartment buildings and sometimes even at home. Years later, when this book begins, August is now an anthropologist, and she studies the rituals of death in different cultures. And she has come home to this area that she left behind to observe her own death ritual. Her father has passed away. And while she is there in the area, she finally runs into one of her old friends on the subway and begins to remember and reminisce about these times. So this is the National Book Award finalist, Another Brooklyn by Jacqueline Woodson. Now, if I were to kind of spend time listing all of the awards that Jacqueline Woodson has like achieved and been nominated for, we could be here for hours, hours. However, I would say that the majority of them are for her writing for children. I'd say Jacqueline Woodson is most famous for her picture books, her middle grade books, and her YA. And I think for me, her most famous book is Brown Girl Dreaming, which is a novel written in verse, which Jacqueline Whipson does a lot of. I think she is kind of a poet at heart. And so this book, she has described as kind of like a mixture between poetry, nonfiction, and fiction, is her first adult novel, which you would never know by reading it because it's so good. And I think that's because when she writes for children, she approaches it with the same seriousness and skill level as she does her adult things. So she does not condescend to children in her writing at all. It's as incisive, as clever, as poetic as any writing for adults. She herself was born in Ohio, moved to South Carolina, and then moved to Brooklyn kind of around the same age as our protagonist. So this is kind of a mixture of fiction, but it's also an examination of what that area was like for her, specifically Bushwick in Brooklyn when she was growing up. And because this area has kind of changed so much, it's one of those areas that was discovered by white people and then has gentrified so much is that she wanted to kind of write about those communities of color and like the the stories and the culture and the people and the girls from there and what they become. I think that if we're kind of talking about the lane, Jacqueline Wilson is definitely a children's author, middle grade author. And so this kind of foray into adult, this was her first adult book. It kind of retains that same poetic dreaminess as has her writing for middle grade, but just kind of like more sad, just just so much more sad, um, which was great because I was reading this on the SkyTrain and there's nothing better than weeping in front of strangers on the SkyTrain at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but it's fine because Emma was on the same train. So I feel like, Emma, you would have been empathetic to my cause. So if you are looking for a beautiful, poetic look at kind of like this beautiful friendship between young Black girls and a, and a, sna a, a loving but realistic snapshot of a specific time and a place, I can absolutely wholeheartedly recommend Jacqueline Woodson's Another Brooklyn. And honestly, if she writes anything, I'm going to read it. I'll follow her anywhere. I'll follow her anywhere. All right. So that that's that's my author that I have chosen. So I'm going to swing it over to Emma, my fellow SkyTrain compatriot, to see kind of like when and where did you read your book? 
Yeah, I actually, I read this book before the recording of this podcast. I think I read it last year. And so I cheated a little bit. I revisited it to uh, remind myself of the plot for this for this episode today. And this week, I actually had a pretty hard time coming up with a book because a lot of the authors that I read, a lot of the adult authors I read typically only write for adults. A lot of the kids authors I read typically only write for kids. So it was hard for me to think of someone who had kind of like one one story, one like standalone story that was so outside of their typical repertoire, either for a different audience or within a different genre. And I kind of cheated a little bit, kind of like what Al did. I picked an author who, while this is definitely a new form for them and a like a new type of story for them, it's absolutely within the genre and within the style that they already write for. But what I did for this is I actually didn't pick an author. In my like sort of crisis of coming up with somebody, I realized that there is a filmmaker who whose work is very, very dear to me and who has had an incredible impact on the books and the TV shows and the movies that I still enjoy today. That although he he's mostly done films, he does have one standalone graphic novel. And so the book that I have today for us is Hayao Miyazaki's Shuna's Journey. And for those who aren't familiar with him, Hayao Miyazaki is a very, very acclaimed Japanese film writer and director. So for those who don't know Miyazaki, you are in for a treat today because he's just absolutely phenomenal. One of my favorite filmmakers, writers, directors, animators of all time. He's best known for his beautiful and thought-provoking animated films, including titles like My Neighbor Totoro, Howl's Moving Castle, Kiki's Delivery Service, Princess Mononoke, and his only Academy Award winner and my personal favorite, Spirited Away. And I've loved Miyazaki's work for a long, long time. I grew up watching Kiki's Delivery Service on VHS tape with my siblings. And later, my sister discovered that he actually had this long list of other films that he's done. And so once we started watching those other films, we became obsessed with him. We just like, we have to see everything that this man has ever created. And falling in love with Miyazaki films was sort of, for me and my sister, sort of our gateway into discovering other anime and other manga in high school. And his films have been a huge influence on the anime industry over decades, not just as like a gateway for people to discover anime, people in the West especially to discover anime, but you look at the different kinds of themes, the different stylistic choices that animators make these days, a lot of it comes from the work that Miyazaki has done in his films. His films are typically fantasy, they usually have supernatural themes to them, and they often explore ideas surrounding life and death spirits and demons, environmentalism, war, and feminism. His protagonists are usually very strong-willed young women, and the antagonists I find actually very, very fascinating. They're usually quite morally ambiguous, but they have a lot of redeeming qualities to them as well. Like I said before, a lot of current anime and a lot of North American cartoons have been heavily influenced by Miyazaki's work, and despite the many, many instances that he has claimed he's going to retire, he continues to make new films to this day. He actually has a brand new film. It's called The Boy and the Heron, and it is in theaters in Canada as of the day that we are recording this podcast. So I will be seeing it this weekend. Everybody should see it. If you're a Miyazaki fan, I'll see you at the theater. So enough about his film. So I'll talk a little bit about the book, Shuna's Journey. So given my love for Miyazaki's work in film, I was so, so, so ecstatic to find out they had also written and illustrated this graphic novel. And this novel was never given a film adaptation, unlike a lot of his other works, because he has some other like manga 
that either were written as a manga and then adapted to a film like Nausicaa was, or he has a lot of films that were later turned into manga so people could read them as well. But this is um, kind of his only piece that's just a book. This one hasn't been uh, given a film adaptation yet. And although the book was originally published in Japanese in 1983, one year before his first film with Studio Ghibli was released, it didn't actually receive an English translation until 2022. So to English-speaking audiences, it's a brand new story. The novel tells the story of Shuna, who is a prince of a small kingdom located deep in a valley where it's too cold and there's too little sun to grow much food. Many of the people of Shuna's kingdom are malnourished and living in poverty, and Shuna takes it upon himself to find a way to improve their quality of life. While on an excursion, he encounters a severely wounded traveler, and he brings him back to his home. The traveler hands Shuna the husks of these dead seeds, and he tells the prince that he's searching for living seeds for what he calls a golden grain. And he says that those who possess this grain will never know hunger or strife. So Shuna is immediately convinced that if he finds this golden grain, he can save his kingdom. They can plant it, they can grow food, and they'll solve their problem where everybody is going hungry. So breaking with custom, breaking with tradition, and going against all of the wishes of his father, who is the king, Shuna mounts his Yakul, who's this uh, beautiful red elk creature, those of you who have seen Princess Mononoke will recognize it as the same Yakul that Ashitaka rides, and Shuna embarks on his journey to find this golden grain. So without spoiling too much of what happens, Shuna's journey is filled with hardship. First, he crosses paths with a group of cannibals, and after a very short but very violent battle, he escapes, and he encounters a city that's ridden with these greedy merchants and human traffickers. He tries to help these two sisters who are enslaved, and while the older one refuses his help, he leaves. So Shuna ends up going out of the city, continuing his journey. He shares his fire with an old man, and those who like Mononoke will kind of see the similarities here. There's a lot of kind of similar plot points that are used. And the old man tells him that he can find the golden grain if he continues heading west to the land of the god. So on his way west, he encounters more human traffickers. And after another battle, he he's reunited with those two sisters from before, and he's finally able to free them this time. So we learn that the older sister's name is Thea, and the sisters and Shuna part ways so that the sisters can head to safety, while Shuna continues to head to the land of the god folk to find the grain. So this is where I'll leave us with the summary. If you want to know what happens, you'll have to keep reading the book. And then I guess now we'll shift to talking about some of the appeals to it and maybe what kinds of readers might like this book. So although Shuna's Journey is marketed and it's cataloged as a graphic novel, it kind of reads more like a long-form picture book. A lot of the images are these beautiful, like, full-page watercolor spreads, and they're accompanied more by captions and, like, exposition than they are by speech bubbles, like a typical comic or manga would be. And Miyazaki fans will recognize a lot of the same imagery in this book's illustrations that he uses in his later films. The dress and the architecture is really similar to that of Nausicaa. And the Yakul and the Land of the Godfolk look straight out of Princess Mononoke. And Thea's character, one of those two sisters, she acts really, really similarly to a lot of Miyazaki's other very like strong-willed heroines. The book also has a lot of similar themes to his films, like pacifism and caring for the land. A lot of Miyazaki's films are kind of about not necessarily abandoning technology, but definitely going back to nature. 
And much like in Princess Mononoke, our hero sets out west from his isolated village into a world that's shaken by ecological calamity. So Shuna shares a lot of similarities with Mononoke's protagonist, Ashitaka. And despite him, Shuna being a little bit more solitary, a little bit more brooding, he's quite a fitting addition to the cast of beloved characters that we already know from Miyazaki's films. So fans of the films, fans of Miyazaki's uh, other work will absolutely find comfort and familiarity in this story and its recognizable imagery. And I'd highly recommend it to anyone who has ever enjoyed a Studio Ghibli film. You have to read Shuna's Journey. It's also a super, super quick read. I think the first time I read it, I read it in like 30 or 40 minutes because it's a graphic novel you can kind of fly through. So it's very, very, very quick to get through. However, for readers where this would be their first foray into Miyazaki's genius, I still think they'd really appreciate the book for its gorgeous watercolor illustrations, its timeless storytelling, and really, really compelling and complex characters. The book is a bit somber, so if you prefer a more lighthearted read, I'd recommend trying some of Miyazaki's films before reading Shuna's Journey, like My Neighbor Totoro or Ponyo. They're a bit more a bit more fun, a bit more uplifting, because um, this one is quite sad. There is quite a bit of violence in it, and it has quite a few more, uh, more adult themes than a lot of some of his other films. But if you're the kind of reader that likes somber stories that are sort of like folklore, but also sort of commenting on the hazards of a globalized economy, you would probably really appreciate this. It's a really visually beautiful, very quick read. And I highly, highly recommend you check out Shuna's Journey by Hayao Miyazaki. Nice. And it wouldn't be keep it fictional if at least half the people weren't cheating on the brief. And, and yet I feel like we kind of tried. We all tried. It's a tough topic. It's a tough topic, but a fun topic. So thank you so much to all of my book friends for some of them reading two books, some of them revisiting childhood favorites, some of them revisiting some closely time as I haven't finished my iced coffee. I'm trying to say time hasn't elapsed since you read them. Ooh. So I feel like on that note, we should definitely like leave the writing and the words to the authors writing in whatever genre or whatever audience they would like to. They are artists as well, and they deserve to kind of explore. They are wordsmiths. And so even if they are not writing kind of what they have before, they deserve a chance to kind of stretch their wings as well. So thank you so much for all of my book friends and for all of our listeners. We hope you have a lovely reading. You're able to kind of stretch your reading wings as well. I'm going to go finish my coffee now. All right. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank mm-hmm. you.